So I invite you to turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And I want to read uh, verses 1 to 12. We looked at 1 to 8 last time. Uh, and I want to look at 9 to 12 this time. Um, but we'll read the complete section just to get some context. <clears throat> And Paul is speaking here, and uh, he's addressing the question of the place of faith and, in the Christian life. He says, What then shall we, shall, shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham it was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God... And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Quote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. End quote from Psalm 32. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after He was circumcised. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So in this passage we we find Paul speaking about circumcision, which may be alien to us, but I hope it will make sense by the end of this. Um, the whole notion of circumcision. It's the second time he's been speaking, he starts speaking about circumcision. Uh, the first time was, if you, may, if you remember, was at the end of chapter uh, 2 uh, into chapter 3, uh, verse 1. And here we find it again in verses 9 through to 12. And we're reminded here that, of course, Paul is addressing Christians in Rome who are, who are also Jews. Um, so they've been brought up as Jews, but they've been converted. But they'll still have much of the baggage of, uh, of Judaism uh, that they're carrying with them. And so we, we, we're, we're, talking about Paul, we're talking about people that Paul is addressing uh, for whom uh, certain rites and certain uh, rituals, if you like, are kind of in the blood, almost literally to do with the blood. Um, this question of circumcision. 
And, and these Jews who become Christians are having to come to terms with the fact that there are many Gentiles who also become Christians for whom circumcision is a matter of indifference. And so you can perhaps see the, the potential for tension between two groups of people within the church in Rome. Now, the Jews on the one hand, who all their life have believed that circumcision is, is vital and necessary to be godly. And then on the other hand, the Gentiles, who by faith come to Christ and they don't need to be circumcised. It's a matter of indifference to them. And uh, as you read across the, uh, all the letters of Paul, you'll, you'll see that this is a tension that comes up every so often. Uh, in the letters of Paul, it's common to many churches. Now we're also reminded that Paul himself uh, is a Jew. Uh, the Jews are his kinsmen, as we'll see in chapter 9. Uh, they are his kinsmen. And that he uh, has been schooled in the, uh, in the practices and all the rit- rituals. He, is, uh, he studied under one of the, the top minds in Jerusalem. Uh, when we Eventually, in our midweek meeting, we'll get to Acts Acts chapter 22, and Paul speaks there about uh, how he studied under the rabbi Gamaliel. Uh, And uh, he describes his own progress uh, as as a Jew, a young Jewish student. And in in Galatians 1.14, he explains it this way. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So Paul himself was a a top student in Judaism. And as he grew older, he became one of the chief persecutors of, of the church. And again, if you look at Paul's letters, every so often you'll, you'll see comments that he makes about how he was the chief of sinners because he persecuted the church. Uh, it's something that lived with him, even as a Christian apostle. The memory of the fact that he was a chief persecutor of the church. But of course, all of that changed for Paul on the Damascus Road, remember? Acts chapter 9. And he was on his way to do some more persecuting, uh, to, to round up the, the believers in Damascus and uh, arrest them and stop them meeting together. But on that journey, of course, he was brought face to face with the risen, ascended, reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And he was thrown off his horse. Onto his back. And everything changed for the Apostle Paul that day. Because not only did he realize that the Messiah that he had learned of in the Old Testament scriptures had come, but the Messiah was the one that the Christians were speaking of and preaching to the world. And his work of persecuting the church was to oppose that very Lord Jesus Christ, that Messiah that was promised. That's why Jesus says to him as he falls on his back, why are you kicking against me? 
because his work of persecuting was opposition to Jesus Christ. And that very Messiah, that day on the Damascus Road, called Paul, the the opposer of Christians, to begin to preach about Christ. And to do so, wait for it, to the Gentiles. Oh, he would be most happy to to preach to the Jews. (laughs) He was one. To be a teacher of the Jews. He already was a teacher of the Jews. But now to be commissioned by the Lord Jesus to go and preach to the Gentiles. Can you just imagine how disturbing that would have been for the Apostle Paul? How upending the whole thing was to his whole life. And his whole thinking had to be rearranged. His whole thinking, not just about the Messiah, but the idea of the mission of God. And how a person could be saved. And until then, for Paul, uh, it, was a, it was all about keeping the law. It was all about his own efforts. It was all about making sure that you were circumcised, that you ate the right foods, and so on and so on and so on. But now, with a new heart and a new mind, he would go back to reread those scriptures that no doubt he knew off by heart. and Rethink them. And he would find this amazing truth in the fullness of time. He would find this amazing truth encapsulated in the words that, are, that Paul uses here in, in, in verse 3 of Romans chapter 4, which come from Genesis 15 verse 16. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You know, when you look at Genesis 15 verse 6, you could almost skip over that. It's such a short thing. If you just skim over if you're used to reading the Bible and skimming over it, you might even miss it. But now Paul, with new eyes, he looks at the scriptures and he, suddenly it clicks. Abraham is justified by faith, but through his faith. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what we looked at last time. We saw that this idea of getting right with God is by faith. And that it's, it isn't actually a new teaching. It's not, even a, it's, not a, it's not a New Testament teaching. It's not just a New Testament teaching, should I say. It's actually there in the Old Testament. It always has been. Justification, being right with God has always been about faith. And he uses the example of Abraham and he quotes from the Psalms of David uh, to make the point. And so here's the first thing I I want to talk with you about this evening. That was all introduction, by the way. (laughs) Here's the first thing. You don't need circumcision to be justified. It's very important for a first century for first century Jewish Christians to to understand. In verse 9, he uh, asks a question of the Jews amongst his Christian readers, and it's to do with circumcision. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcision? The blessing he's talking about there is the blessing of the forgiveness of sins. 
and acceptance with God. And he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And he's just quoted from Psalm 30, 32 verses 1 and 2. And he's speaking about that blessedness of forgiveness of sin. And what may be behind this, this question is a little assumption that's uh, built into the Jewish mind that to be f- truly forgiven of your sin, you need to be circumcised first. That, that would be how a first century Jew might think. To be truly forgiven of your sin, you needed to be circumcised. And therefore, you could then be counted as righteous. And they might be saying to themselves, yes, I hear what you're saying, Paul. Righteousness comes by faith, not by human achievement. But surely that only applies to circumcised Jews. Now you see the assumption that maybe lingers in the back of the mind of uh, these Jewish Christians. That first you have to be circumcised, and then you get righteousness by faith. Uh, so Paul asks that question, is the blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? And the answer, of course, is actually quite simple if you look carefully at the life of Abraham. So verse uh, 10, Paul says, How then was it counted to Abraham as righteousness? How was it counted to him? Uh, And and in a sense, what he really means there, when was it counted to, to him? When was that righteousness counted to him? When did he get right, right, uh, get right with God? And in particular, what relationship does it have to circumcision? Was it at the point he's circumcised that he gets right with God? And if you look at Genesis, you'll see that, of course, uh, Abraham was circumcised in Genesis 17. And uh, and all his households. But faith is credited to him as righteousness in chapter 15. In other words, faith is credited to him as righteousness before he was ever circumcised. And the conclusion that Paul wants Christians to to draw and for us to draw is that you do not need to be circumcised to be justified before God. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. Even you Jewish Roman Christians. That's all you need to be righteous before God, to be counted as righteous. That's something, of course, that we, we need as Christians today to be continually looking out for, for ourselves. You know, it's easy, easy for us to see this in, in Abraham. It's right there on the surface. The justification, being right with God, is by faith alone, uh, not by faith after circumcision. But something happened to the way that the Jews read the Old Testament such that they couldn't see it. The whole culture of first century Judaism and the natural propensities of the sinful human heart seemed to lead people to be blind to this assumption that you had to do something even if it's just circumcision, for you to get right with God. And this is the temptation 
to the human heart all the time. We've got to do something before we can be treated as right with God. There's something that we've got to contribute to our justification. We've got to meet a certain moral standard. We've got to do a certain number of good works. We've got to be circumcised. We've got to be baptized. We've got, we've got to do a number of, number of hoops to jump through. And then God will treat us as righteous. And maybe we can add to that a faith. But fundamentally, we've got to do something. We've got to contribute something. But that, of course, is simply to smuggle in a dry rot into the structure which ultimately will destroy it. Because, of course, salvation has to be only by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. That's the only way you could be right with God. God has to count you as righteous of his sovereign free grace. But if you say to to God, well, I I have this faith, but I also have all these works or all these qualifications, then hear me loud and clear. You have no righteousness at all, if that's what you're saying. You do not have righteousness. If you're resting on your qualifications. And here's the thing. No matter how good you are, how nice you are, how moral you are, how many religious activities you go through, God is still against you. It must be by faith alone, in Christ alone, all received by grace alone. And it's, that, it's in that faith that you, your faith is credited to you as righteousness. Whether you're circumcised or not, whether you're baptized or not, whether you're a nice person or not, whatever, none of it matters. So righteousness. You don't need circumcision to be justified. You don't need anything else to be justified. You just need faith in Christ. Here's the second thing. Circumcision... And here, there is a significance to circumcision, and by implication, other covenant signs. Uh, Circumcision is a seal of righteousness. Uh, Circumcision is a seal of righteousness. So the Jews might be asking uh, at this point, well, uh, what's the point of circumcision? Is it useless? Is it a waste of time? Is it a waste of effort? Uh, What's it for? And it's a you know, it's a good question, but it's clear that Paul doesn't think it's useless because he uses two words in, in verse 11 to describe circumcision. The two words, let me read the verse. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. That's Abraham. So two words there, a sign and a seal. Circumcision is a sign and a seal. Now, circumcision, let's just think about those two things. Circumcision is a sign. In other words, it signifies something. Um, ra- rather like, you know, if you, if you go down the M40, you better take the left fork off the M42. If you, you better take the left fork off the M42 to go onto M40 to get to London when the sign says. And you see a sign. Uh, and the thing is that you know, the sign points you in the right direction, but it's, it's not the destination, is it? Uh, you, you don't camp out. At, if you're going to visit London for a day, as 
One of our church families did this last week. Uh, you don't just camp out at the sign and say, well, what a great place London is. Uh, you, you get on and go. So the sign points to something. And circumcision is a sign. It points to something. Uh, it points to God's covenant grace. And so you need to go back to Genesis 17 to see the, the covenant that God makes with Abraham. The promises he makes uh, for uh, producing of children and the, uh, the seed and the blessing that's going to come. So as you, as you, so the way that the sign is supposed to work, the circumcision is supposed to work, is, is that you are constantly reminded of the wonderful promises that God has made. That's how circumcision is supposed to work. It's a constant reminder in your body of God's covenant grace and mercy and all his promises. So it's a sign. But it's also a seal. What do we mean by seal? What's a seal? Well, a seal actually goes further than just being a sign. Uh, because a seal confirms or guarantees something. Uh, you know, in days of old, you can just imagine this. Uh, before uh, the days of modern technology and, uh, and things. Uh, you know, a king would use a seal... Uh, on his ring, perhaps. You know, you, you get these signet rings. Uh, it's, well, it's, what do you call them? Sealing rings. And they would have a, a special pattern on the top uh, that is unique to the king. And so he would write a letter. And, of course, to avoid forgery, there's only one of these rings. And to avoid forgery, he would close the letter up, uh, blob of molten wax on the seal, and then he'd stick his, uh, his, his ring into it with the unique sign that comes from the king. And so when the recipient received it, the recipient would know this actually comes from the hand of the king. So the seal is a, an authenticating sign that this is the real thing and that the king really wrote the letter. Now circumcision works in the same way as a seal it confirms something to those who are circumcised. Now, what does it confirm? And Paul says it is a seal of confirmation, a guarantee of the righteousness that comes by faith. So while circumcision itself does nothing to, to get you the righteousness to get you uh, righteousness is as you believe in the authenticating sign that righteousness is yours. It's as you believe righteousness is yours. And the sign confirms that to you. Now here's the interesting thing about it. The seal was given not just to Abraham, but to an eight-day-old boy. You'll get Genesis 17, verse 12. And uh, the little boys were given the authenticating sign as well. In other words, those who, who may not have had faith uh, are still to receive the sign and a seal of righteousness by faith. Now how can they do that? Why does God command that if those little boys had no obvious faith? Well, the reason is, 
Because circumcision, the sign of the covenant, the seal of the covenant, was never intended to be a seal of the reality of your faith. You see what I mean? It's not an authenticating sign of your faith. It is a seal of the righteousness of God that comes by faith. In other words, it is a seal of the declaration of God to you. Not about your response of faith. It's all about the grace of God. Not about your response to the grace of God. The seal of the covenant, this covenant to Abraham and to Moses is intended to draw attention away from the receiver of the blessings to the giver of the blessings. You see? Now, I want to just develop that a bit further. That this, and to state this, that this is true of every single uh, successive covenant of the Bible. Yeah, just think about the, the sign of uh, Noah in Genesis chapter 9. Was the rainbow intended to draw attention and to point to the reality of Noah's faith? No. Was it intended to draw attention to God's promise not to flood the earth again? Absolutely. It's not about Noah, it's about God. The authenticating sign. So what about today? In the new covenant. Where we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. As signs and therefore seals of the covenant of grace. Are they given to us to confirm our faith? Or are they given to confirm the grace of God in all his gifts to us? And of course it's the latter. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are given to continually remind us of the grace of God towards us. It's not actually about the faith of the person being received and an authenticating sign of the faith. Now why am I making this point so strongly? Why am I making this point that the sign and the seal is about the grace of God and not about the faith of the recipient? Because I think it's a common view amongst many Christians, that the act of baptism, for example, is a testimony to the faith of the one baptized. And the focus for many Christians, and the joy of many Christians when somebody is baptized, is to focus on the joy of their faith. And almost to forget the gift of grace, of God, the grace of God. And to have our attention drawn to God. And I hope you can see that that's a pretty serious matter. That if anything detracts from the gracious glory of God, that's something that should be rejected. And also, there's a, there's a practical reason why we need to focus on the giver rather than the, the recipient of the gift. Supposing you're going through a bad patch in your spiritual life. Your faith is weak. You're stumbling as a Christian. Uh, you're not sure, you're doubting, you're worried about things. Uh, can knowing that you've been baptized be a, of help to you? 
I would suggest that if you use your baptism as, as evidence of, confirm, of your faith at the point of your baptism, then you will receive no assurance for your present faith. Because your faith is weak. Why should your baptism have any bearing on your current faith? But if your baptism, if you see your baptism as confirming to you the promises that God has made in Jesus Christ and your, and your attention is drawn therefore to him, then your baptism simply serves as a reminder of all those promises that are made over to you in Jesus Christ and are true for you personally because you personally were baptized. That in that sign, God was authenticating the truth of his promises to you personally. You see? See how it's supposed to work? That's why baptism and remembering your baptism and remembering that you were baptized, you may have been a child and you didn't know anything about it, but you come to faith and you know that God had put his sign upon you. And he has offered you his gifts in a wonderful way. So the sacramental signs and seals that we have in the new covenant, just as in the old covenant, are intended to draw our gaze away from ourselves and instead to look and think uh, about Look at Christ and think about him and his work. So if you're a Christian today who has been baptized into Jesus Christ and is in the habit of receiving the Lord's Supper, are you going to rest your assurance and certainty about the benefits of God's saving grace on what you perceive the state of your faith to be? Or are you going to use the signs as God's means of communicating to you the person and work of Jesus Christ for you. And so experience your baptism and the Lord's Supper as a confirming seal to you that Jesus and all his benefits are yours. I know which one stimulates greater faith. Not always looking at my faith. Looking at my faith doesn't stimulate greater faith. Looking at Jesus Christ and all his works stimulates greater faith by God's grace. Well, that's quite heavy going. We're nearly finished. But do rejoice in your baptism if you've been baptized and use it. Especially when you're struggling and you're having trouble and you doubt God. Always remember. I've been baptized. I'm a baptized man. I'm a baptized woman. God has put his hand on me. And the promises are mine in Christ. Because he's sealed it to me. The last thing, and this is very quick. Righteousness, therefore, is for the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Uh, uh, Paul concludes this passage by declaring that the righteousness is counted to all those who have faith in Christ, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, whether Jew or Gentile. The sign of circumcision is a help to confirm to faith that righteousness that has been attained. But we must be clear about this, that the signs of the covenant in themselves do not, do not save. 
It is not true to say that every circumcised person in the Old Testament or every baptized person in the New Testament will be justified. But it is true that every person who believes in what is signified in these covenant signs shall be justified. You see, all that have faith in Christ have Abraham as their father. Which, of course, was a challenge to the Jews who claimed the fatherhood of Abraham by natural descent. And that marked them out against the rest of the world. But Paul, a former Jew, shows that all who have faith in Christ have Abraham as their father because they have the same faith. Know the amazing power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The amazing power of the gospel to break down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave or free, black, white, whatever your color. The amazing power of the gospel. And if it can be done for Jew and Gentile, it can be done for anybody, any groups of people. It really doesn't matter. The power of the gospel is to cause such people to turn their eyes to Jesus. And as they turn to Jesus, yes, they're drawn to each other. And that's a faith that we share across all peoples and cultures across the world. A faith by which the righteousness of God comes and sealed to us in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful gospel. Thank you for the truth of it. And thank you for the signs and seals of it in baptism and the Lord's Supper. We thank you, Lord God, that we have all we need to assure us and encourage us remind us of the great things that Jesus has done for us. And we pray that we would grow in that knowledge and that certainty. Help us to use our baptism, uh, to improve our baptism, as the, uh, the saints of the past used to say. But help us, Lord, to draw closer to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.